No power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We come on a Sunday morning to be reminded collectively. It helps us to be in in the same environment with other believers who need that kind of reminder because so much of life seems to want to grab us by the ankles and drag us towards all of the uh, the theme of hell, if you will, because of uh, the enemy's constant pressure to give in, to cave, to lose our sight on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that really comes from I, what I think is probably re- responsible for most death since the creation of man throughout all the generations. The, the thing that has uh, been responsible for the death of not only our, our physical life, but our relational life or our, um, our, our governmental structures or uh, the, the careers and all the other things that, that mankind was created to enjoy, to have dominion over under, the, under the, um, the creation of the Lord. And yet this sneaky little thing comes in and sometimes it's deafening loud. You'll know it when I say it. You'll know if you've been in the room with it, it just, you can't hear anything else but it. And then sometimes it's, it's completely silent. And it's the, it's the language of hell. It's the theme of hell. And it's in one tiny little word that starts with P and it's called pride. Pride is the thing that made Adam and, I, Adam and Eve's eyes wide open in the garden when, when Satan said, don't you want to be like your maker? Don't you want to sit on his throne? Don't you want to orchestrate, order your life instead of having someone else tell you how to do it? And ever since that moment, pride has been the fuel that has, that has uh, burned down entire civilizations that has caused us to be stuck in this mode of sin that Jesus has come to rescue us from. The problem that we have with pride now, and it's always been this way, but, but it seems even more prominent as the generations go on, is that pride is now the celebrated uh, thing that, that if you find some, you're doing well. If you stand up for yourself, if you tell others that it's your time to shine, it's your time to step forward, it's your time to finally get your piece of the pie, whatever metaphors each of the marketing generations have given us, if you grasp it, you take life by the horns and you carve out a space for yourself, you're celebrated. And the whole time Satan's sitting back going, Man, it was, it was a little difficult. I mean, just a little bit difficult getting Eve to hear what I was saying before. Now it's become, they're doing my work for me. I don't even have to say it anymore. When we say that we gather as a body of believers in a countercultural environment, what we mean is that the philosophy of the culture around us, which is seeping into every aspect of our lives, it's on every scroll of our screen, it's, it's, it's coming through all of the interactions that we have in our workplaces, it's, it's coming into our homes through the result of our kids adopting all these new philosophies that have just been repackaged ever since the garden. When we say we're countercultural, that we're listening for what does the Spirit of God say through His Word that helps us to move against that grain, that helps us to resist that same pull that brings us back, if you will, to the fires of hell. First Peter five five was a, a a verse that we studied last year. Peter, in a very countercultural way, says to clothe yourselves, all of you 
with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If our culture, A, recognized that God was real, and if they came to that conclusion and then moved, so what does he do with pride? The language of that is that he is actively moving against the prideful. He is continually warring against pride. And on the other side of that, he is continually showing grace to the humble. All of our marketing endeavors, all of the philosophies of the world would start to fall flat if we recognize that God is real and that he is all powerful. And if his forces are marching against pride, we would say, maybe it isn't just about what I can get in life. Maybe it isn't just about how everything affects me and getting my slice of the pie. When we come to our text this morning in John 3, we encounter the idyllic humility that is demonstrated by a man that we've already been introduced to called John the Baptist. Keeping in mind that his name, the Baptist, is not what was given to him at birth. It was just his occupation, his title for what he was doing. We are going to see that John the Baptist demonstrates this incredible statement and act of humility. And most of us would look at that and say, that's really special. That's really pretty neat how he did that. We, we'd have to understand, theologically speaking, for him to see that the mission of Jesus would advance, he had to say the things that he's going to say. But the thing I want to caution us is not to necessarily just elevate John the Baptist as some sort of moral pinnacle for us to say, I want to be more like John the Baptist. I want you to be more like John the Baptist. But John the Baptist doesn't want you to be more like John the Baptist. He didn't just learn how to be a good guy. He wasn't just born with this kind of uh, personality that shows deference to other people. And, oh, no, no, you go first. Here, let me get the door for you. You know, sometimes we know people like that, right? We know people that are just kind of naturally giving, naturally like, I don't need the spotlight on me. And then we know others that are the opposite. And do you know who you are? Actually, you probably don't know who you are. Pride's very deceiving. Did John just exercise good people skills? There's an art to humility, you know. Makes good business sense for a lot of people. It's in the leadership books. If you read those and they talk about some of the most successful CEOs in the, in the world know how to elevate others and make them feel equipped and, and important and everything. So humility can be a practiced art as well. Was that what John knew? Did he have the people skills to just put all this together? I think it's more than this. I think we're going to see that his unwavering focus towards the mission that he was given by God took out of John's spirit even the hint of wanting to take credit for what he was doing, what he was accomplishing. So let's get into our text. Let's go to verse 22 in John chapter 3, and let's set up our, our, um, the body of our text today. He says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, the text tells us a little bit later on, the scriptures tell us later that Jesus himself wasn't doing the physical dunking, but the people that were there serving with him and everything like that, if you care to know those kind of details. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Spoiler alert for John had not been put in prison, not yet. So we know that, humanly speaking, things don't end well for John the Baptist. And that isn't there just to be the literary teaser, if you will. That would be really good uh, 
information for us to have, but also John's trying to remind us that he wrote things in a different order and a different style than the other three gospel accounts. So he's saying, I'm picking up the story earlier than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. So the things that you're used to reading about in the other gospel accounts haven't yet happened when I'm recording this episode. So that's why that parenthetical statement is there. John had not yet been put in prison. But there's a lot of baptizing going on. The place that they were at means a wealth of springs, and there's a lot of water there, as the text tells us. So those ministries, those crowds are starting to converge because it's the place to go to do a lot of dunking, and there were a lot of people that needed to be dunked in the act of obedience. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. The minor part in this is that there's a bit of a debate happening between a devout Jew and the disciples of John. And they're saying they're talking more about this religious rite of purification. Remember, we were introduced to that at the wedding ceremony in Cana where they had the six pots for purification and things like that. Gave us a window into the religious practice of making sure that the outside was clean to be presentable before the Lord. But Jesus is on mission to show that that the Lord cleans up the inside. We were, we were understanding this through this language of the new birth. And so they're arguing about this. They're debating. But then something else catches the disciples' attention that they want to bring to John. They're saying, hey, um, we have a really good thing going here. And you know we're dedicated to you, John. Uh, we're doing the work. We're seeing the crowds grow. We've enjoyed this for some time now. The one that you'd prophesied was coming, well... You know, newsflash, he's here and he's actually uh, gaining a crowd. In fact, a lot of our crowd is, is going over to him. You can sense the concern. Now, we can't read into the text and, 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 and make it sound like they're just flat out jealous or they're biting their nails or something, but there's at least enough in all of us to understand that the good thing that they have going, the momentum that they're enjoying... Because we like serving in something that's moving in a direction, don't we? We like dedicating ourselves to something that's happening. And these guys had this happening in John the Baptist's ministry. So, John, should we be concerned that Jesus is gaining our crowd? Does it seem as though that we're probably losing a little momentum and steam here because they're starting to go to him? It's a legitimate question. It's a little legitimate concern in every other atmosphere other than pointing to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see from John's example is that the constant requirement, this is killing pride in our life. And I use that phrase, that, that very um, you know, stark phrase of killing pride has to be a constant requirement in our lives. And it needs to start from a place of taking serious inventory of what goes on in our hearts. You're not going to react as John is about to unless you've been practicing moving towards or surrendering some aspect of what lives on inside of you. There isn't a a leadership guru technique. There isn't a a chapter in one of those leadership books. There isn't an amount of just being uh, born right with the right personality of being deferential. That isn't what's going to have you say the things that John is about to say in response to his disciples' concerns. 
So I have a couple of questions to ask us as we go through the rest of this text. And the first one's going to come from verse 27. Uh, John answered, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Am I in the right spot? My notes are a little bit weird. Is that verse 27, those of you that are in your scripture? I have a big giant Bible here. I just can't read it so well from up here. I'm at that age, in case you were wondering. I know, I look 28, don't I? Uh-huh. Those of you that are sitting in the back going, yeah, he does. Yeah. No pride in there, right? Constant killing pride, right? John answers and says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So the question is, does your supply, I almost put in my notes, does your stuff come from God? These questions I'm asking are not questions of, I want you to state a fact back to me, because I think most of us would be in a good spot where we could say, yes, intellectually, I know I don't have anything apart from God being so good to me. We know how to say that. This is more a question of recognition. You know the right answer, but have you really accepted it in your heart? Have you really determined in your life, I am going to live as one who knows that everything that I have that's been given to me is from God. John says a person can't receive even one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You see, he's, he's setting the stage for them to understand that his answer isn't just going to come from a place of being the good guy. He understands theologically. He's got a proper alignment with who the Lord is and the role of, of things and sustenance and, and even calling or what we would call purpose. He's even going to say a little bit later on that his completion, his fulfillment in life comes from above. James echoes this later in chapter one. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What is John saying here? John's saying, I'm not really afraid of losing that which I didn't have to begin with. Uh, this ministry that you and I are enjoying, all of the the uh, the momentum of this, the crowds that are coming, I didn't do this. Well, how much power do you think I have? I've got I've got honey and bugs in my beard. I'm a weird dude. I'm socially off putting. I I didn't do this. This isn't marketing 101. You're not afraid of losing what was never yours to begin with. What we have is from God. It is a fact, but it isn't always uh, settled in our hearts that that is what it is. Who we are is in Christ. He continues in verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. You see how John knows his place? He knows what his position is in the entire grand scheme of things. I was only supposed to be ahead of Jesus. I was supposed to announce his arrival and then get out of his way. I'm not supposed to stick around. He's got a, a really clear understanding of his role. 
Don't you and I get our, our role a little out of balance? Don't we often try to do the other person's job? Don't we try to carry the other person's concerns? Don't we try to micromanage their life, their reactions, all of those things? Because we've lost sense of the fact, I have a place, I'm supposed to do this, this is all that I have control over. And even that isn't a whole lot. I surrender myself to a bigger picture. This is what John the Baptist is demonstrating. I'm looking to some of the other apostles to help color this in for us. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, in a debate over the very cool and stylish Apollos, even his name is awesome, and then the sort of the bland kind of great organizer, deep thinker, but not the, the most winsome person, perhaps the apostle Paul. And they're saying, well, I really like Apollos better. I like Paul better. And they're starting to do the trading cards, comparing stats. Paul says in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, what then is Apollos or what is Paul? Servants through whom you've believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And then he gives an example that they're going to be able to understand. Verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, to which everybody says, no, duh, of course. But he's setting up the stage. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, what we would say traditionally is the best man, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now we're starting to see this play out in language that we can understand. We've been to weddings. I've seen a lot of bridegroom kind of interaction behind closed doors and stuff. And you see how uh, you can tell if the guys are there to make this his day. If the guys are there because it's all about their buddy who's getting married today or the other ones who are like, they're a little too hung up on this whole best man thing and making it about them and, and all that sort of stuff. They're not really good at their job. You can see that play out. And John is saying the proper relationship is for the best man to be in it for the bridegroom. He's the one that gets the prize. He gets the bride. People don't often walk away from a wedding and go, man, that best man was something, wasn't he? Every once in a while, the speech is great, but you know the speeches that we like the most at, at best man speeches are the ones that are tasteful, tactful, and brief. Then we go, that guy did a great job because he got out of the way, right? Actually, there's a, a rumor to have been an ancient law around the time that said, if you're the, if it's, this might sound a little bit weird at first, but hear me out. If you're the best man, you are forbidden from marrying the bride. Again, we say no duh. It's not his job, right? But you think about this, you know, it's not that it didn't happen back then too. The groom never shows up. Or maybe he decides partway through the plans or something like that. Nah, not interested in her. And the best man is going, oh, she's a catch, man. She's a prize. How could you? He is forbidden by law to take his buddy's place. There is that much respect and, 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 uh, and, uh, um, uh, serving of, of the, of the bridegroom by the best man that he says, I'm all in it for you. Even if you change your mind, I'm not going to cut your knees out from under you and, and take what you passed on. 
Now, in our days of pragmatism here in America, we'd be like, well, he's the idiot. He loses out. The best man happens to be there and she loves him. But you see, John, John is talking in an environment where people understand these things. You make these commitments and you see them through, even if it costs you something greatly. What if, what if you loved the girl and you say, well, I'm sorry, I accepted being this bridegroom's best man. I knew what that would mean. If he flakes out, I don't have that option. Do you see how John is demonstrating here uh, how in it for the bridegroom he is? even to his own sacrifice. So the question is, does your supply, does your stuff actually come from God? I think Pastor uh, Tom did an excellent job this morning talking to us about our opportunity and our tithes and our offerings. But if we just talk from a church standpoint about how much we need or whether or not we should get up here and get clever about how to get people to give... And we ignore the fact that you and I, like he rightly said, we have an idle problem, right? We hang on to our finances because it gives us a sense of control over our own life. And practicing generosity, and I don't even mean like giving thousands to the church. That's between you and the Lord, whatever you do with that. But I even mean like um, if you've ever had somebody buy your coffee and Dunkin' Donuts in the drive-thru, you pull up and they say, oh, the car in front of you paid for you. All those little acts, two, three dollars here, this kind of constant drip starts you, it starts a process for you letting go of this flesh kingdom that you live in. Remember we were talking about the ceiling that we, that we, the atmospheric bubble we keep popping up against and we start walking in another kingdom. We start living a spiritual existence because we're letting go of the material that so quickly wraps us up. But that comes from a place of us understanding all I've got is from God anyway. I didn't orchestrate this. Well, you went to college. You earned a good living. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You worked hard. You got your promo. Yeah, I did all those things, but I wouldn't have even had the opportunity. I mean, I was born in America. How do you control that? You, have you ever stopped and thought about that? It's like, how did, how did I get here? How did I get this opportunity? Well, it's because I'm a genius. You, you couldn't control who you were born to. All that I have is from the Lord anyway. Why wouldn't I let him have full reign over what he wants to do there? This is the attitude coming from John the Baptist, which leads to our second question. Where does your satisfaction come from? John makes his very, very clear. He comes in the second part here, verse 29. Two amazing statements come out of 29 and 30, which is kind of the highlight or the focal point, I should say, of what we're studying this morning. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. Can you imagine being able to say that? If you're not sure if your joy is complete, how did you, hmm, we're talking about money, it's already uncomfortable, how can I keep pressing on the gas here? Um, how did you anticipate these stimulus payments? Before you heard news that something was coming, was your joy complete? And if you say, yeah, it's pretty content, how did your mind wander when it said, you know, that's coming? It would be an indicator of how complete your joy is if, if we're always, and this is me preaching to the choir here, that this, if we're always anticipating what more could I get, do, or have, it's a statement of the in, incompleteness of my joy. And John is saying, no, the thing that you're saying is a, is a threat to our success and our environment and all these kinds of things. I'm seeing it as finally it's happening. 
The thing that I've been called to, the thing that I've been waiting for, the thing that has been my joy since day one. Luke 1 tells us that when Elizabeth meets Mary, they're both pregnant with child, Mary with Jesus, Elizabeth with John. When they meet each other, John leaps in his mother's womb and the scriptures record it. So I don't think it was just a kick because there was probably plenty of those that didn't get written down. So is there a reaction where John is saying, ever since I was even in his presence, my entire life was going to be built on making sure his arrival was, was, was the way it was going to be, that I was going to point to his arrival and give him glory. John 1 even told us that his, his role from day one was the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, make straight the path of the Lord. But John says, my joy is now complete. It's filled. It's, 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 it's flowing over. Only purpose that comes from the Lord fulfills us. Everyone's seeking purpose. It's their God-given, uh, it's their God-created sense of, of desire to find the purpose in life. But only purpose that comes from God offers fulfillment. Only purpose uh, that, that the problem is, is that pride elevates our purposes above the Lord's and leads to this, this repetitive emptiness that you and I feel. Pride says, I actually want to feel fulfilled for the things I can achieve, the things I can accomplish, my wits, my smart, my, my availability. I want those things to fulfill me. Rather than just saying, the Lord's got a plan for me. His purposes are big enough in my life. What we need is in Christ. But who we are is also from Christ. The distance between the emptiness that you and I so often feel and the fulfillment that we so often crave, that distance is measured by how much you are willing to, just like John the Baptist did, to settle in your heart that life isn't about me. This fulfillment that I'm chasing, if it's self-serving, which it is, this fulfillment that I'm chasing, it, 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 the more I chase it, the further away it seems to get. Rather than resting in the fact that the Lord has a plan and a purpose, and as soon as I surrender to it, and John demonstrates it with his entire life, and we're going to point to it, until I, I understand that all of this fulfillment and achievement has nothing to do with how I feel about it, starts to take on new meaning. Now, I will add that the Lord, because he's a gracious God, gives us fulfillment in the journey, that it isn't all drudgery. It isn't without its joy. That's what John is attesting to here. But our pursuit of the fulfillment that we want on our terms that meets our definition of, of scratching that itch continues to elude us. We end the quotations and the interaction with John the Baptist here in this passage. And many would say that we're moving into a place of commentary by John the author. Sorry to confuse you, but we've got two different Johns happening here. John the author, the apostle, has been with us from the very first verse. But then we've been talking early on here about John the Baptist. Well, John the author... It seems like because the language matches a lot of what we've seen already in other parts of the scriptures... He offers a commentary for us. 
And I think that this commentary is going to put sort of the exclamation point on what John was believing and what he was carrying out. Verse 31, he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, great man. Jesus said of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. He was amazing. If you said, I want to be more like John the Baptist, I would applaud you. I would encourage you. But there's a limitation here. He is of the earth. He speaks in an earthly way. Jesus, though, is he who comes from heaven and is above all. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever, though, receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. We're not going to exposit this text and pull out the meanings of all the different words and look at some of these incredible phrases in detail. But I want this paragraph to help us understand that statement I made early on that because what, with what we saw from John the Baptist, he wasn't even tempted to take credit from Jesus Christ. Why? Because he understood what the author was saying about Jesus. We might say, John, it's so big of you to be small when it's Jesus' turn. It was so nice of you. It was so uh, appropriate of you. Well done. You, you got out of the way when Jesus was coming and everything. So good on you. Way to go. John would say, do you think I had a choice? I'm standing in front of the most brilliant light this universe has ever seen. That, that, that the son of God has come to visit. And you think I'd even tempt myself to steal glory or credit from him? I, I got myself out of the way like somebody can hold back a tidal wave with their bare hands. John would be admitting to us, this wasn't me being a good guy. or me. The, the thing that the disciples were missing in all of this was the magnificence and the glory of Jesus Christ. John had encountered that since his mother's womb. In a sense, he had been practicing his whole life to witness this glory. And even when he did, he was still overwhelmed by it. So John, the author, is saying, listen, the reason why John is able to say so clearly, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And by the way, he must increase, but I must decrease or diminish. He said, you're talking to the moon hanging in the sky and you're saying, hey, how great of you to get out of the way for daybreak. How nice of you to, to let the sun do its thing. He says, I'm just the stone in the universe hanging in the sky. I couldn't stop that even if I wanted to. And once you see the brilliance of the sun rising, why would you want it to? One of my favorite songs by uh, a musician Sarah Groves is simply called You Are the Sun. And she says, uh, this is how she, she puts it. She says, you're the sun shining down on everyone. Of course, she's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Light of the world, giving light to everything I see. Beauty so brilliant that I can hardly take it in. And everywhere you are is warmth and light. So far, we would say, we would acknowledge 
That's true about Jesus. We know that from the scriptures. I know how to sing those same songs in worship. I know those verses that say that Jesus is great and he's, he's big and all those kinds of things. But the strange part for me, the part that resonated with me so much of the son is that, with the song is that she took time and she took perspective to put herself in the right place with all of this. She had a proper understanding of her role in this. She says, I'm the moon with no light of my own. Still, you've made me to shine. And as I glow in this cold, dark night, I know I can't be a light unless I turn my face to you. Shine on me with your light. Without you, I'm a cold, dark stone. Shine on me. I have no light of my own. You are the sun. John the Baptist would say, you are the sun. You and I, as we kill pride in our life, would say, he is the sun. I am just the moon. So how do we kill pride? We, we certainly go through the exercises. We have some suggested in your notes, things that you can do on a daily basis or things that you can practice to, to make yourself aware that you are simply the moon and that he is the sun, but it doesn't happen at least thoroughly until you and I accept in our hearts, what do I have to be prideful about? How could I compete with that? Any attempt to take credit or glory or anything for myself is as laughable as somebody trying to hold back a tide with their bare hands. John understood this, and John would say, don't make me your goal. If we elevate the character of John the Baptist and say, I want to be humble like him, that's only a step in the right direction. How do we become humble like that? By surrendering and putting ourselves in the presence of the glory of the same Jesus that he was before as well. Some of you are struggling in home situations where you're with somebody who is just very overtly prideful and you can't get out of that person's way or you work with those people or that's just the way that people are around you because you're nice and you're pleasant, you're a pushover and that sort of thing. And so you seem to attract those kinds of people. What's the answer for you? The answer for everyone who is dealing with Pride, whether subtly or overtly, is to encounter the glory of Jesus Christ. How are you shining the light of Jesus Christ to the extent that it can be so hard to fight against that it can be impossible to argue with? Are some people addicted to pride like it's any other substance? Absolutely. Will they dig their own graves because they won't humble themselves? Yes, they will. But your role, as you often feel so helpless, is to shine the light of the Son of Jesus Christ. You are the moon. You do your part. You reflect him. You turn your face to the Lord Jesus. If you're struggling with pride, a recognizable pride, and you say, you know, that's me. You know, often I run into some of the most humble people that say their biggest problem is pride. Because that's what humility does, is it thinks, I'm just the moon. But some of us, we know that's our sticking point. We know that we've probably been walking around from time to time like we own the earth, or that we think a little too much of ourselves, or that kind of thing. I would encourage you to put yourself in the audience of the brilliant glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the things that make him God and make sure that you know that you're not? How often do you put yourself in that audience? How often do you rehearse those attributes? How often do you seek those things or study those things out? 
Do you find yourself moving towards gravitational pull kind of thing towards people that are humble so that you can let some of that kind of rub off on you and be convicted by how humble they are? Does that warning of God actively opposing your pride scare you? It should scare all of us. It should give us a healthy, godly fear that he's capable of doing the job. And he actively hates pride because humility leads us to him. And that's the best place for us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for for John. I thank you, Lord, that you raised up such an incredibly humble servant. I thank you, Lord, that he did his job. He did it faithfully. He did it beautifully. He did it effectively. And he received great joy from being in your will. He received great completion from doing simply what you called him and equipped him to do. Thank you for letting us know that it's not just some sermon, that it actually does happen in people's lives. But Lord, we want to know you. We want to know the Christ that John the Baptist so willingly surrendered his life to. We know, Lord, that if we look to you, that if we allow ourselves to reflect your brilliant glow, that you'll put us in our proper place, you'll give us that right fulfillment that we need, but you'll also shine brighter. Your glory will reach to the other uttermost parts of the earth because we got out of the way. Break us of our pride, Lord. It's subtle. It trips us up. It, it deceives us. That's why Adam and Eve were just like us. That's why we're just like them. It sounds great. It sounds healthy. It sounds accomplished. It sounds all of those things, Lord. But it's a lie from the pits of hell. Help us not to surrender to it. Help us to recognize it as it even gets started in our hearts. Protect us from us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.